Um, in this series, kind of the three pillars that we're looking at is what does it look like to delight at the table? What does our togetherness look like at the table? And what does it look like to be a good neighbor, the art of neighboring and using our tables? Um, the way that we've been launching each, um, each morning and each uh, sermon is by having some opening uh, conversation with one another. If your table uh, maybe has around two or three people, you can uh, maybe join another table as we enter into conversation with one another. Um, once again, as we enter into conversation with one another, if you would prefer to just step back and enjoy the dialogue that's happening around you, then please just do that. In no way do we want you to feel obligated to have to share. Um, but as we talk about celebration this morning, here's our opening question. Um, it is this, describe your ideal meal. Describe your ideal meal. What are you eating? Who are you with? Where are you at? And what's for dessert? Before you dive into that, uh, for those of you that are watching online, um, if you go to the front page of our website, faithsandiego.org, you'll see a Zoom table talk link. Um, if you click to that, it will connect you uh, with the great bearded one, Jeremiah. Um, he will connect with you in conversation. Um, and there might be a passcode that's needed, and that's in the conversation thread on the YouTube link. So if you click on the comments, you'll see that uh, potential um, code that you'll need to get into the Zoom table talk. We'd love for you to spend some time there um, talking with one another. So break into conversation with one another. Describe your ideal meal. What are you eating? Who are you with? Where are you at? What's for dessert? What's for dessert? Well, as we, as we, let's get into this. Um, I just want to start with... With, I'm going to start with four different passages. They're not, they're not long, um, but what I wanted to highlight in this space is to say we get, we get these glimpses of Jesus in the gospel accounts when it comes around, when it, when it comes to food, so often it's elaborate and it's abundant and it's overwhelming and it's overflowing and it is really, really good. And I think that as we look at these, you, I, what it hopefully might provoke in our own imaginations when we, when we think about the character and the nature of God, um, that it helps form in us this understanding that he's, he celebrates and that he enjoys and he delights and he loves and he overflows. I, I came across one person who wrote, you know, it was this toast that they had, and, and the end of it was that God has loves, not reasons. That it's like he, he just, he loves. And it's like, what would you ask me? Well, why'd you do this? Is there a point to it? And it's just like, that's the point. I love. I love. So you listen to these, listen to these, to these points of, of Scripture. The first one is that the calling of the disciples Right? Remember, he tells the disciples to throw the net onto the other side of the boat and says when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. And then listen to this here of Jesus breaking the bread or feeding the 5,000, and when you listen to the story, it's actually 
that the gospel writers will make sure to point out, it was 5,000 men and their families that were fed. So conservatively, you're looking at 12, 15, 17,000 people that are fed with the, the, the loaves and the fish. So Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? He asked, he says, go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up towards heaven, and he blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Listen to this. There's, Jesus is talking, and he, he says, you know, that John the Baptist came fasting. And, but then when they talk about the Son of Man, here's the statement that they make. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. The religious leaders are upset that he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They call him he's a glutton and a drunkard, but he's not done ruffling their feathers. More than just being a friend to them, you'll see that he takes it a step further and he eats with the sinners. And here's the statement in Luke um, chapter in Luke chapter 15, it says tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to lift, listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. He's eating with them. What I just gather from these, these passages is that when you find that when Jesus does a miracle with food, it is absolutely overwhelming. And when he sits down with people, it is this this posture that is filled with so much joy and delight that people look at him and say, he's a drunk and he's a glutton. And I wonder if the abundance of these passages intentionally draw us back to the garden account and the fall of humanity. Because what you recall just even from a couple of weeks ago is that when, when the Garden of Eden is described, it's this place that is, God is watering it. There's a water that's flowing underneath the garden and the trees are, they're producing the fruit. Like there is this, there's this abundance and this elaborateness and delight that's to the garden. And at the fall of humanity, the, the curse is that, they, that we will have to toil and we will have to labor in order to get our food. And so when Jesus shows up and just says, here's so much abundance, it's like he's drawing us back to the Garden of Eden and saying, do you see that there's so much abundance in me? That now that I'm here, you don't have to scratch at the soil anymore. Look, I'm coming back with such abundance. But stop for a moment and imagine the heart of a person that does these kinds of miracles. What kind of God nearly sinks boats by throwing so many fish into them? What kind of God 
feeds over 15,000 people so they can eat as much as they want and still have 12 baskets left over with food. What kind of God gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard? What kind of God sits down and enjoys meals with tax collectors and sinners? What kind of God does that? Come on, what does is, what is Jesus' face look like in your imaginations as you picture these moments? I, I just think about the joy and the laughter on Jesus' face as he's watching Peter trying to get the fish into the boat. Can you, can you just picture him just sitting there just laughing? Like, come on, guys, you can do it. Like, just on the shore watching all, all these fish are like, flopping around everywhere, and then just the delight on Jesus' face to see them overwhelmed with so much abundance. What does Jesus' face look like in your mind as you imagine him in the space where there are over 15,000 people in front of him and him looking up to heaven and giving thanks? I doubt that you picture this really serious face. There there had to be a grin, right? Like, like, thank you, Father. Think about what Jesus looks like. As the religious leaders are standing over here off to the side and looking at him interacting with tax collectors and sinners. How do they see Jesus interacting with them? How do they see Jesus there in that moment that would cause them to say, he is a drunkard and a glutton? There there must have been something so scandalous in their eyes that would cause so much offense in their hearts to watch the happiness that Jesus just absolutely carries himself with as he's hanging around with the notorious sinners. And I just just think that maybe what was so challenging for them is that maybe there's this over-serious, critical, self-righteous heart that's confronted by a man that is overflowing with grace and generosity. I am growing more convinced that what frightens us about God is that he is overflowing in holiness and beauty and goodness and mercy. Because we stand before that with our self-consumed lives and we're confronted with someone that loves. We're confronted with a being that that just loves to show mercy and grace. It's a holiness. It is is a perfection that is absolutely beyond us. It has become so challenging. Do you actually realize this is literally the reason why Jonah ran away from God? Listen, Listen to what Jonah says. 
at, at the end of the story of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, after God forgives the Ninevites, this is, this is Jonah's response. He complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were merciful and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. That's why I ran away from you. Because your mercy is nothing like the mercy that I show. Like you interact with, with Jesus and you realize that his grace and his forgiveness and his goodness and his perfection is so abundant that it shocks us. It shocks us. There was this section of The Divine Conspiracy, which is written by Dallas Willard. Um, there's this, this section in his book that I'm not hyperbole, not exaggeration, has become one of the most impactful sections of any book outside of Scripture that I have read. And it's this. We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink, tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. And then after Dallas writes this, he goes on to describe that at one point he was in South Africa, and I think he was looking over, um, he was looking over Port Elizabeth, and as he was looking at the beach, he said there was something about the, the colors and the light and the textures that, were, that he was interacting with, and he said that what came over me was suddenly this, this, this delight on behalf of God. He's like, He's like, I suddenly became happy for God that he sees this vista and billions of others like it all across the universe on, on billions of worlds. God is seeing vistas. He is seeing sunsets. He is seeing... Like, just imagine all that God is, is constantly stopping and observing, right? Because listen, after he makes creation, what is, what is his account to us? The women are going to be saying this on, on Saturday night. It is good. Like, that's, that's our introduction to the Lord, is that he looks over creation and he just goes, huh, this is nice. This is good. This is great. Like, suddenly, I think it, it, it should provoke within us like a, this understanding of, of the character and nature of God, that he is he's joyful. He enjoys, he delights, he loves. Dallas said, great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. 
Another biblical philosopher and theologian, Norman Wurzba, says this. As with all of creation, food does not have to be. The fact that it is and that it has potential to occasion great delight is a sign that God made the world not out of boredom, but out of joy. Come on, we were up, Larissa and I and the boys were on vacation in, in Washington visiting her family and my family too. I do consider them my family. <laughs> um, we just went into Larissa's parents' backyard and they had blackberry bushes everywhere. And by the end of the week, I was an expert in knowing exactly how the blackberry was going to taste as I was plucking it off of the vine. And, and just, like, just stopping and thinking, like, there were so many blackberries that just tasted like candy. They were just, like, perfect in the juiciness and the right amount of sweetness. Just, like, a tiny, just subtle bit of, of tartness that was in there. And it was just like, oh, this is so good. And it didn't have to exist. Food could have been boring. Food could have been just like, just something that we just partake of because it, it gives us fuel to keep on going. But uh, again, Wurzba, I'm going to mess up how he talks about it in his book, but he just says like, food is God's love made nutritious. This is a God that celebrates this is a God that is glad, is made glad in nourishing and sustaining people. Food didn't have to exist, let alone be amazing. It shows us at the core of who God is, he is good and he delights and he is joyful. And the discipline of celebration is one that tunes our hearts to his goodness. Celebration is an act that lifts up our heads and takes notice of his hand at work in the world around us. The elaborate acts around food that are constantly displayed by Jesus teaches the church to live with celebratory and gracious hearts. God is good and abundant, so we don't have to take ourselves too seriously we can then become humble and gracious and generous people that are prone to celebrate and prone to celebrate others as well. I want to read this from Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. Um, here's her little statement. She talks about G.K. Chesterton saw in God a childlike wonder. And she, and she comments, children never tire of beauty and pleasure. They embrace enjoyment with abandon. They don't feel guilty about taking time to search for feathers, invent a game, or enjoy a treat. Come on, parents. Have you ever walked around with a kid and you're just constantly like, stop playing with that. We got to keep on going. And they're just like, they have a rock in their hand and they're just absolutely in love with the world. Chesterton imagines that God revels in the pleasure of his creation like an enthusiastic child. And here's the quote of G.K. Chesterton. 
because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Whew. Whew. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. I want to read another story to you. It's in the Gospel of John. It says this. It says in chapter 2, I'm reading from the NRSV. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it come, came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's some, there's some details here that I don't want you to miss. A couple of them will come up on the screen right now. The details that I don't want you to miss is that, that John intentionally writes here for us at, at the start is to mention this is the third day. And then he mentions these jars that were used for purification. And, and on the third day, Jesus takes these waters that were used for Jewish rituals of purification, and he replaces them with wine. C.H. Dodd comments, what is Jesus doing here in this moment? It, he, this is what he's up to. It's the replacement of the old purifications by the wine. So the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God, the old temple by the new uh, in the risen Lord an exposition of new birth for new creation, a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ. This is resurrection. This, this is the inauguration of the new kingdom. These, this is Jesus breaking in on, on the old and saying there's a new way amongst you now. This is Jubilee. This is Passover. 
This, this is so rich in, in what, what John is describing here for us. This is the breaking in of the new king. This is Jesus arriving and saying, like, the new kingdom, or the kingdom is here. I love what, what Richard Foster says. He says, Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming the year of Jubilee. The social implications of such a concept are profound. Equally penetrating is the realization that as a result, we are called into a perpetual jubilee of the Spirit. Such a radical, divinely enabled freedom from possessions and a restructuring of social arrangements cannot help but bring celebration. When the poor receive the good news, when the captives are released, when the blind receive sight, when the oppressed are liberated, who can withhold the shout of jubilee? That's what Jesus is up to here in turning the purification, the waters of purification to the wine. It's this place of saying like this new, or excuse me, not this kingdom has broken in. Something good is happening here. He's bringing freedom. He's doing a good work. And it's a good news of great joy for all people, the poor, the captive, the tormented, the blind, the deaf, the one with leprosy, the tax collector, the sick, the prostitute. You can all rejoice. You can all celebrate because a new wine is here amongst you. It meant to evoke, provoke for us the Passover where the custom to, to say over the third cup of the Passover were, were these words blessed are you Lord our God King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine and I want you to catch this detail as well it won't come up on the screen but John tells us that there were six purification jars, and each of them were able to hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. So they're filled to the brim. Let's say that that's 30 gallons in each one. That's 180 gallons of wine that are now here at this party. By the way, what makes me really uncomfortable, I'm just going to be honest about this, I don't have an answer for it. it. It seems like the crowd is drunk and Jesus still provides wine, and that just makes me uncomfortable. And I don't, know what to, I don't know what to do with that personally, but it's there, it's in Scripture, and we have to wrestle with it. But here he is, and he provides 180 gallons of wine, and we're told that it's good wine. It is the best wine. Michael Card in his commentary said, if their total capacity is 180 gallons, this equals 900 fifths of wine. If we conservatively value this excellent wine at $30 a bottle, the total comes to $27,000 worth of wine that Jesus just provides. The implications are that this new work is abundant and elaborate. It's the best wine and can only be provided by God. Jesus inaugurates his ministry within the context of celebration. Like this good wine, the best that lips have tasted, he is doing a work that will go unmatched. 
he is worth celebrating. He's coming and letting us know, I'm making things good. The abundance of wine and the abundance of food used by Jesus are teaching us that God will provide our need for our needs. We run out, but God provides. We don't see a way forward, but God breaks in. Celebration happens through the hearts that have learned to trust in the provision of God. Even if this doesn't work out the way that I would have hoped, I rest in the bosom of God's love and joy, and that is my strength. And so what you learn from the apostles, what you learn from followers of Jesus are statements like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about every, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from, seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will go with you. That to spend time with Jesus is to learn to turn our attention to the fact that he is good and he is up to good things in the world around us. That, that, that we are caused to turn to him and to discover that amidst whatever, whatever we are facing, whatever spaces we find ourselves to, is that we can, we can attune with thanksgiving and celebration to the fact that he's up to good in the world around us. Let me wrap up with this. This story of Jesus turning water to wine shows us that while God might be up to something really good and new around us, some eyes may be ignorant to the miraculous workings of God. Listen to what it says in verse 9. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had draw, drawn the water knew. This work that Jesus was up to was invisible to some eyes, but the servants saw it. And that is no subtle statement. The master of the banquet only tasted good wine, but the servants tasted something greater. These lives that are obedient and responsive to Jesus are the ones that take notice. And I think the encouragement to us is, listen, you servants of our Lord Jesus, pay attention to him. Turn your attention to him. Constantly make a conscience effort to think about that which is good and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. You, servant of our Lord Jesus, live with wonder and awe in this world. Let me go back to Richard Foster. He says this, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. 
It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. When we choose this way, the healing and redemption in Christ will break into the inner recesses of our lives and relationships, and the inevitable result will be joy. Celebration is a discipline. If we would go right now to, to our tables, um, we're going to have, we're going to receive communion uh, with one another. And as we receive communion, there's a simple prayer that I would um, have, you, have you pray as you partake of communion. And it's, and it's this, thank you for your body broken and your blood shed. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Would you take a moment around your tables and would you celebrate the body and blood of Jesus um, with one another? We're going we're gonna, to, in a moment, go to table discussion. And uh, before we do that, there are some announcements and things that, that I definitely pushed uh, to later in the service, and so we're going to do that now. Um, one of them is, uh, if you go to the front page of our website, faithsandiego.org, and then you'll see a Connect tab, um, upcoming events, is we're going to be hosting, Lurs and I are hosting listening parties. Um, there's four of them that you'll see posted on um, the events tab. And what are listening parties? Um, they are going to be these small spaces that we'll have, Lurs and I will have people over to our house for either a lunch or a dessert, depending on what day you come. And we uh, just simply want to hear uh, about your, your story. Um, we want to hear things like what has, uh, what are the dreams and passions that are on, on your heart? Um, what are the things that have worked in your relationship with Jesus? What has helped in your spiritual formation? Um, what are the felt needs that exist among our community? And then by hearing these, uh, having these points of dialogue, conversation with one another, that, you know, the, the prayer really is that that will continue to help Lurus and I as we prayerfully, you know, just process what does it look like for us as a community to continue in this posture of following well, loving well, and serving well. Um, I guess just simply put, we just want to hear where y'all are at, and then with that, those data points and those, those shared life kind of moments that then we continue to, to go forward uh, here as a community. Uh, the other thing I would want to let you know is in two weeks, on Sunday morning, we'll be having our council Sunday. Um, it'll be an opportunity for the church council to stand before you and just let you know where we're at more in the administrative life of the church. Um, so definitely something that we would encourage you to, to be a part of. And um, as part of that morning, we will be electing a new member uh, or nominating a new member of council, and that will be Jim George. Um, no one will be rotating off, um, but we just thought we'd continue to... Um, to make our council team a little bit more robust and continue to have more uh, faces and vantage points around that table together. So that'll be in two weeks. Um, this coming Saturday, there's going to be a women's gathering that's going to be at Karen Nelson's house. Uh, they're going to be having a night of celebration. Um, I'll just confess, like, we're not this good in that we 
planned that this Sunday would be on celebration and then we would have this women's gathering on celebration. It really just came together that way. Um, but the women, you'll have an opportunity to put this morning into practice on Saturday night by having a night called It Is Good, where you'll be sharing desserts and stories. Dana Ryan, if you would raise your hand and people can come chat with you um, after. And then uh, one of the other events that you'll see on our website is a church potluck that Danny and Laura Clem uh, will be hosting here for our community. Um, that will be in three weeks, and so you'll see the event listing there and all the information that's listed. Excuse me, it'll be in two weeks, okay? Well, let's go to our tables, and the, the closing uh, dialogue that we'll have together are over these questions. Uh, do you find that celebration comes naturally to you? What is God doing around you or us that you'd like to celebrate? And is there a simple act of celebration that you could do this week? Mine is, I'm going to pay extra for guac this week without hesitation. Um, so when I am at Chipotle and they say, do you want guac? I'm going to say, absolutely. And I'm going to say, it is good. Um, <laughs> is there a simple act of celebration that you could do this week? Go and have some time together. For those of you who are watching online, uh, we do have that Zoom uh, link that is there. Uh, in about 10 minutes, parents, I will come back, specifically saying to parents, uh, for the, us to be able to go down and uh, bring our kiddos back upstairs here with us. So take about 10 minutes or so, and then um, I'll come back here.